thanks so much. So, um, yeah, as has already been alluded to, we are, are wrapping up our Familiar to Fascinated series this morning. And, um, and for those of you here just here this morning, I'm going to give you like five lines on what we have covered in the past sort of seven weeks. So get your hats and glasses ready. We're, we're going on a whirlwind here, right? But we have been learning from all of those people who, who pre-crucifixion had relationship with Jesus. And they were familiar with him before he died. But when they encountered the risen Jesus, everything about their reality completely changed. The one who they had followed, who they had believed and, and assumed was dead and stead dead, was now alive again. And they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that anything he had to say, they needed to listen to it, okay, from this point on. And so we saw how Mary Magdalene recognized the risen Jesus when he called her name on Resurrection Sunday. We saw, how, I'm, a, I'm a Chosen fan, so that's why I'm going with this. And so if you know the Chosen, it might be familiar to you, but... Um, Sorry, I've lost the flow because I'm just getting excited about the chosen. So yes, we saw how the two on the road to Emmaus understood the big picture of scripture and their own place in it when their eyes were open to who Jesus really was. We saw how the disciples encountered the risen Jesus and it says that he breathed on them. And as he did that, he transformed their chaos and their hopelessness into peace and into transformed vision. We saw how Thomas needed that connection with Jesus to put all of his doubts to rest. And then last week, of course, we saw how Peter was restored and commissioned again to his original purpose when Jesus redeemed the shame that he was carrying around denying him before he uh, went to the cross. And so by this point, in everything that we have looked at and all of the passages that we've explored, I think it would be reasonable enough for us to conclude that the disciples were now well and truly fascinated with the person of Jesus because they've encountered him in a whole new way and their worldview, as you can imagine, like when you honestly think of the reality of somebody who was dead being alive again. It just blows your mind. And so their worldview completely it was tilted off center, okay? And the next passage that we are looking at this morning, and we're pulling hopefully the whole thing all together this morning, are Jesus' last words on earth, okay? It's the Great Commission that we're looking at today. And you know um, that anybody who's experienced anything like this, but somebody's last words on earth, they usually carry weight. They're usually what's most important about their life. And so for that reason alone, we should particularly pay attention to what Jesus is saying on this morning and that. So we're going to look at this in Matthew 28, and, um, and it should be on the screen, but it says, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So as I sat down um, to, to pull this passage apart and see what I, I felt like God wanted to say about it, the first thing I noticed about the disciples in this passage is that they were obedient. And you're probably like, oh, I don't really get where you're going with this. But I want to tell you why I think they're obedient. If you remember right back um, when we looked at Mary Magdalene on Resurrection Sunday, Jesus told the women at the tomb to go and tell the disciples that they were to meet him in Galilee. 
And this is it happening. This is Galilee, right? This isn't just a dander from Portadown to Lurgan, okay? If you um, lived at that time period, um, it's like they, they went from Jerusalem to Galilee, and that's the equivalent, I spent a long time looking at this, from walking from here to Sligo, okay? It's about 100 miles. And you didn't just do that on a whim, okay? You wanted to make sure that it was the right thing to do, but Jesus told them to do it, and having encountered this resurrected Jesus, they didn't want to miss the next thing that he was going to say. So they packed up and they went to Galilee. They were obedient to what Jesus told them to do. And then I started thinking, what is it about Galilee? Surely Jesus could have done this anywhere. But you see, let's see if this sounds familiar. Galilee had a bit of a reputation for being, um, there's no other way of saying it, but a bit dodgy, right? Um, (laughs) There was a blend of Jews and Gentiles, however, it was mostly Gentiles, but it was known for its political unrest. Does that sound familiar to you? It was known for organized crime, okay? And so we can confidently say that Galilee desperately needed the kingdom of God to break in. And it did, because when we see throughout the Gospels, we saw that it's where Jesus' own ministry became public, right? When he turned water into wine. It's where Peter and Andrew were first called to come and be a disciple, to, to follow Jesus. It's where people were healed. It's where people were set free from demonic influence. It's where the Beatitudes were taught and miracles like walking on the water and feeding the multitudes. These things all happened in Galilee. And the beautiful thing about it is the disciples saw it all. Matthew 4 tells tells us that they saw everything that Jesus did there. And I wonder, so this is just my own speculation on it, all right? And if you have different ideas, we can have a chat at the end. But um, I wonder, did Jesus want to share his final words with the disciples in a physical, geographical location that would stir up those memories of what Jesus' own ministry looked like? You know, when you go somewhere and you're like, oh, yes, actually, I remember being there and this happened that time. I think that's what Jesus was trying to do here. Was he maybe just using this physical location to remind them of all the ways that he had displayed the kingdom so that he could trigger those memories and actually spark faith within them in turn saying to them, you know, you saw what I did. You were witnesses to it actually happen and now it's over to you. Go and imitate me. Jesus believed this was entirely possible. And he hasn't changed his mind on that. Nothing has changed. It's still entirely possible for us now. And that is the core of who we are as a body. Then as we look on into the passage, we see, right, the disciples' reaction to Jesus when they saw him. It says, it says that they saw him and that they worshipped him. Now, this word saw in the Greek, in the original, it's like, it's to know. And so um, they had a relationship with Jesus. They'd been around him for a long time. They'd served alongside him for three years, being discipled by him. They knew him. I, I know Stephen, like I know when we're in a room. And there's something he finds funny, but he doesn't want to laugh about it because it's inappropriate. Or I know that if there's something that's going to trigger him, you know, I know him. Um, and, and it's this kind of knowing that they're talking about here, okay? This was like a deep calling out to deep recognition. And they identified, they identified this man as the one who had uh, just beautifully and, and graciously and powerfully actually restored their hope. They knew Jesus. They knew that they could trust him. They had been put back up on their feet again. They had been dusted off and he was encouraging them to keep going. 
And it was from this knowing, okay, when they saw him, it was from this knowing, it says that, that they worshipped him. And again, in the original language, um, the understanding around worshipping Jesus is that they advanced towards him. Okay, it was like there was an invisible draw. There was like a pull towards him. They couldn't help themselves. You know, when there's somebody that you just want to be friends with and you can't really help yourself, but you just want to be around them because they're good for you. It was this kind of context. They were in pursuit of Jesus. They had opened their hearts to hear what the master was going to say. And Jesus wasn't distant. He was ready to speak. And, and most of them, they didn't want to miss it. Okay, and that was their heart posture. But then when you look at the next part, it says that some doubted. Even in his presence, even while worshiping him, with Jesus standing right in front of them, some still had questions. Personally, I'm glad Matthew kept that part in. I think you can be in the middle of your God-given destiny, like worshiping Jesus in spirit and in truth as these guys were, but you can still have some doubts. And I think this shows us that actually, like we've learned already in this series, Jesus is happy enough with that, I think. Because when you see what he does, it says that Jesus came to them. He didn't wait for their response. He saw that they needed reassurance and he saw that they needed connection. And he didn't sort of stand off and say, you know, when you get that all sorted out, when you get those doubts put to rest, then you're going to be fit for the job that I'm about to give you. He doesn't do that. He moved towards them. And as he did that, I think that he put any doubts that they had to rest. And he didn't judge their doubts, but instead he, he just gently confronts their doubts with himself, with his own presence. And I think in all of the accounts that we've looked at around this series so far, we see that this is like a consistent approach of Jesus. This is what he does best, I think. He is constantly moving towards his disciples. And again, he is constantly moving towards us whether you're sitting in the room this morning full of faith, like ready to go and take on the world for Jesus, or whether you are struggling a lot with your faith and with some doubts, Jesus is moving towards you. So after all that, now we're actually going to get to what he says. He says, um, when he begins to deliver the Great Commission, he frames it all with this like powerful declaration. This is what he says. He's, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, we've taught a lot around this. So like in one sentence, you know, because of the fall, authority belonged to the enemy for a period of time. But then through the cross and the resurrection, Jesus took that back again. Hopefully, hopefully you know that and hopefully we're secure in that. And the word authority, again, we've taught on this before. It's this word exousia. Um, Oh, that was back in McGowan. What a journey we've been on. That was back in McGowan. So the, we've taught on, on authority before, and, um, and it basically just means it's like the universal power and authority, right? So when Jesus says that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him, we basically um, define that here as Jesus's rule and reign as being the preeminent force at work on the earth, okay? That's how we define that. And you see, the disciples saw for themselves how Jesus had to, in his own ministry, take authority over nature. Like, for example, when he calmed the storm, he had to take authority over the demonic. He had to take authority over sickness. And, um, and, and when you think of the reality of what these guys have been through, they were probably still carrying a bit of baggage over um, how the Romans had, had wounded them, you know, and, um, and even how their own religious leaders had colluded with the Romans to wound them as well. And so everything was probably still a bit raw. So when Jesus says this, 
this does something for the disciples. He's basically saying that every other force that is at work on earth, they don't, they don't have what I have. And this, I believe, shifted something in the disciples' minds, okay? Because when I study this, I, I realize all over again for myself and, and hopefully for us as a body that, um, that God can penetrate every realm and sphere of influence on earth because everything is now under his authority. And now the disciples, and hopefully we, have the confidence and the freedom in his absolute authority to step forward, okay? And so Jesus was framing the whole thing with this line, and, and now that he had hopefully got that settled in the disciples' mindsets, then he was saying, Do you know what? And so because, that, because of that, because all of authority belongs to Jesus, therefore go. And the word go, I'm going to sound like... I'm doing my grammar lessons in school, so I apologize, but it's a doing word, okay? There's an action involved in it. And some scholars quite rightly believe that it's an actual sending kind of going, like we've done with Wayne and Sue, where there's like a geographical movement where people from all over the world can hear the good news of the gospel. And of course, we see that played out in the New Testament as we see how the church was established, okay? But others believe that it can also be, be translated as, as you go, as you go about your everyday life, as you get on with being, okay? And um, do you know what? I actually think both of those things sit comfortably together for me. Um, I don't think it needs to be one or the other because the reality is some are definitely called to go. But the truth of the matter is a lot of us aren't called to go, go. A lot of us are called to build the church locally as well. But here's the thing. And if you get nothing else from this morning, would you let it be this? Everybody's commissioned. Whether you go, go, or whether you stay, go. <laughs> That's really bad English, isn't it? But hopefully you get what I mean. Everybody is commissioned. And what are we commissioned to do? Well, Jesus says he wants us to make disciples. And in the ancient world, a disciple is someone who actively imitated the life and the teaching of their master, right? It was like this deliberate, intentional apprenticeship, which made a fully formed disciple as a living copy of their teacher or their master, right? And so a disciple was required to, I love this, but he was required to interact with and imitate a real person. And so when Jesus says, go and make disciples, it's a proactive command in which us as followers of Jesus have to consistently make sure that we are becoming more like him and helping other people to do that as well, becoming living copies of the master. And when I look at how Jesus did that, do you know what? He did it in a really beautiful, organic kind of way. He just did it with relationship. And Stokes puts it like this. He says, Discipleship is a life orientation. It is a discipline which includes values and character that is as much caught as taught. This requires a relationship beyond that of the teacher and student. It requires a life relationship that builds from one mature person to other maturing ones and from generation to generation. You see, Jesus knew that discipleship was the primary way to build the church. And at the core of it, it was really simple, but it was actually incredibly profound. It was, it was relationship. And so as we 
go, go, if anybody in here is called. That will get to that a bit more in, the, in a moment. But just as we go about our daily lives, this is what really hit me all over again. Are we relationally discipling those people around us? For me as a mummy, am I discipling my children? Because I can tell you my children are being discipled whether I like it or not, okay? But am I being intentional about that? Do I have the vision for my kids? Do I have the creativity <laughs> to actually make them want to engage in that process? But what about if you don't have kids? What about your other family members around you? What about the people that you work with? The people that God has brought into your sphere of influence? Are we serious about this? Because the thing is, Jesus like, fundamentally believes that humanity can become like him, right? And as we do that, as we engage ourselves in the process of discipleship to help others become more like Jesus as well, we're participating in the original design. This is how Jesus did it himself. So we have to make disciples, and he tells us that we have to do that of all nations. Now, the disciples, as they follow Jesus around in his public ministry, I imagine a lot of their um, religious prejudices would have been shaken like right at the foundations because Jesus would have done some things that would have made them very uncomfortable, okay? As Jews, they believed that they had like a cultural exclusivity to the Messiah and anybody else around them, they were sort of secondary and unclean and the Messiah was just for the Jews. But Jesus, in his beautiful way that he did these things, he'd already sort of, you know, shot that one right out of, <laughs> of the pond because he ministered to the lady um, at the well in Samaria. And this would have just like pickled the disciples' brains. This would have made them very uncomfortable. But Jesus had pioneered this. He wasn't asking them to do anything that he hadn't already done um, himself. And in Acts 1, which is um, just a further expansion of the Great Commission, he instructs them to be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, but then he pushes it further and he says, into Samaria and all the earth. And anybody who claims to be a follower of Jesus, I've got to tell you this, you're going to be pushed beyond what you're culturally comfortable with, because that was Jesus' way. Discipleship largely involves, from my own experience, a heck of a lot of deconstruction about what you think is right and how you should do these things, okay? Because what Jesus was asking the, these guys, but also us to do, is, is uh, so much bigger than the prejudices that I try to shoulder and carry, right? What is the point? What is the point in having the good news and having the answers to the problems of this world if we keep it to ourselves? That is the opposite of the kingdom if we just hide in our little corner and, and, and go into self-protection mode. That's the opposite of what Jesus did. And so what I think Jesus is trying to say is, he said, I'm asking you to place the fact that I am to be made known to every tribe and every tongue far above your comfort, far above your preconceived ideas about social hierarchies, far above the systems and the structures of the world, because Jesus' love knows no bounds, okay? In fact, his love actually just demolishes all of those earthly boundaries that we ourselves try to put up. And let's be honest about it, that we also sometimes try to hide behind. I know I do. 
So we have to make disciples of all nations, and then he says, baptize them. Like, I'm not going to get into baptism um, very much other than to say that um, we believe that it is an outward expression of what Jesus has already done within us. He wants people who follow him to go public with their faith, and it is a command. It is not like an optional tag on, like, would you know if you ever feel like you want to get round to this, maybe you'd like to be baptized. It's a part of the Great Commission. It's something that Jesus asks us to do. And it's just like the natural next step in um, in telling everybody that we're no longer living for ourselves, but that we're living for Jesus, okay? And then he finishes off with this. He says, this is the last thing that he instructs them to do, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, I'm looking for a little bit of interaction here. What did Jesus command us to do? Yep. Yep. I've got that down. Well done. Make disciples. It's kind of like it's, sorry, somebody else is there. Yes. It's like one of those, I, I was starting think, thinking about this as preparation for this, and I thought, what does Jesus command us to do? Well, when I say this, hopefully you'll know it. He, he commands us to love God and to love other people, okay? He commands us to forgive. He commands us to repent. He commands us to look after the poor, to pray. Uh, basically, everything that he taught the disciples falls under this umbrella statement that we sometimes use here in church is that we preach the gospel and that we declare the kingdom is at hand. We believe that those are the things that Jesus tells us to do and everything falls underneath that, Okay. But can you see why it's important that we're secure in that? Can you see why it's important that we know what Jesus commands? Because how can we tell other people if we don't know ourselves? But a big part of the process of discipleship is obedience. And I actually, you know, obedience is one of those unpopular words at the moment, kind of, you know, culturally. And I think God actually wants to redeem that because it's easy to obey somebody that you trust. It's easy to obey somebody that you know is inherently good. And I know he is, and I want to obey him. I, I, I'm not saying this in a sanctimonious way, but you know, most of the time I find like, oh, I trust him, and so if he says it, I'm going to do it, right? But imagine what the church, like the whole world over, would look like if we obeyed the commands of Jesus, if we fed and clothed the poor. Imagine if we obeyed the commands of Jesus. I don't think we would see the unprecedented levels of dysfunction in relationships and in mental health because I think that Jesus, people would find wholeness in Jesus. The levels of loneliness that are at an epidemic proportion, we wouldn't see those. Those would be curbed because we would largely stop living for ourselves and we would live to serve other people and give our lives away for that. And we would be generous with our time and our money. The church as a whole, I think, would be a generous, soft-hearted, but strong, backboned, creative, solution-finding, kingdom-building movement if we upped the priority of obeying everything that Jesus had commanded us and considered the process of discipleship as not like a sort of, you know, click on like a bit of Lego that you add on. <laughs> if discipleship was fundamental for us in the church the world over, I think we, everything would change. Howard Snyder says it this way. I've used this quote before, but I think he really nails it. He says, church most transforms society when it is itself, itself growing and being perfected in uh, the love of Christ. The being, the being 
the growing and the being perfected is fundamental, but the doing is just the natural result of that. So just to pull this all together, Jesus teaches that because he has the authority, we are able to go, go, or as we go, we are able to make disciples, to baptize them, teach them to obey Jesus. And then he closes out with this, just this clinker, he says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And the word with in this, um, thanks Stephen, um, the word with in this is the word meth. And it means that we are in company with Okay, we, he is behind and beyond and surrounding us. And so Jesus, when he commissions us, he doesn't send us out helpfully or helplessly to, send, to fend for ourselves and to fight for ourselves and to do this on our own. He has promised that we're in his company and that he is behind us and beyond us. And that as we follow the unpacking of the Great Commission, that we are doing so surrounded by Jesus himself until the messianic plan where the kingdom is established on earth is complete. And then he went. Then he left earth and ascended to heaven. And he still reigns today. Jesus still reigns, even right now, in the middle of all of the nonsense that we have got going on here, he is still reigning in all of that power and in all of that majesty. And he promised in Acts 1 that actually we would receive the power as we went about the Great Commission as well. So now that hopefully there's a wee bit of meat around that, then we have to ask ourselves, so what does that mean for us as the church? I... Uh, to be honest, um, as I've been preparing for this morning, I, it has taken me a long time to kind of land on what I felt like God was, was trying to say. I have wrestled with this one for a couple of weeks. And in the middle of the week, as I was praying, um, I just, I felt like God was saying that he wants to commission people all over again, that there is a fresh commissioning for people. I think through our previous series, through our Cultivate series, and also through this one, I think God has been stirring up hearts. I think he's been dealing perhaps with some of our shadows. And I think he has been helping us with the baggage that we maybe carry around some of those things. He's been sanctifying us. And I believe that there are people this morning in the room, maybe for the first time, or maybe even for like the hundredth time where you're like, do you know what? This is why I'm here. I am all in for this. This is what I want to do with my life. Because when Jesus gives the Great Commission, it's just this expression of what he had prayed when he taught us what we commonly know as the Lord's Prayer. He says in it, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think this is a reflection of the longing of his heart it's what he wanted. This is the essence and the thrust behind the Great Commission. This is God's action plan. This is his dream from the beginning. He wants this to happen. And he's looking for people who are going to take it seriously. Because if we don't, what are we doing here? What are we doing here this morning if we don't take this seriously? Charles Swindle puts it like this. He says, whatever we do, we must not treat the Great Commission like it's the Great Suggestion. Jesus wants us to take this personally. He invites us to dream. He invites us to reimagine. He invites us to practically put into place initiatives which are going to make this happen. This is why we're here. We're not here to play. 
This is not a spectator sport. He commissions everybody. And when you look back at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1, where he gives them um, the command, Adam and Eve the command, he said that God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. We know that this part was broken. But I wonder, is the Great Commission, like the new Genesis mandate, is he looking the church to be fruitful, to increase in number, to work to fill the earth with those that bear the image of God? I honestly believe, like with everything that's in me this morning, I've never been as convicted about anything that I've ever spoken about before. I think Jesus is saying to us, right, guys, let's go again. Let's fulfill the desire of God to see the unfolding of his master plan. And Ron Luce says, he says, the Great Commission is the great adventure of Christianity. And so whether this is new to you for the first time, perhaps you just get an awareness of this, or maybe you have felt the call on your life for a really long time, but you've never really felt like it's gained momentum, like you've got it. And you know that there's something that God wants for you, but you just can't seem to like get up out of the chair with it. I believe this morning that Jesus wants to invite us into a fresh commissioning again, a fresh mandate for us. Because this is what he tells the disciples in John 20 verse 12. He says, as the Father sent me, even so, I am sending you. See, when you get it, when you get it, when you get why you're here, when you understand that you have an eternal purpose on earth, when we understand why Jesus came, what the kingdom looks like, there's usually like an involuntary impulse just sort of rises up out of your spirit, like you're moved to contribute, you're moved to roll up your sleeves and get stuck in. And I think that the Lord specifically wants to say this morning to some people in here who maybe been feeling this for a long time, that he, that he trusts you. He trusts you to take this and do as he did. Because when you give somebody a job to do, you give it to someone who you actually think can get the job done. And I think that's what Jesus has done for the church. And maybe you feel that, do you know, I get that, but like I'm so broken and I have nothing to offer. Maybe you feel too inadequate. Maybe you feel too inexperienced or maybe you've been burned Maybe you've tried this before and it wasn't a good experience for you. But I want to tell you that he still picks you. He still chooses you. Because when we focus on what we can't do, we forget everything that God can. Everything that he can do. The disciples were crippled with doubts. They were held by, back by inadequacies. Their ego constantly got in the way. They had to deal with impulsiveness. But Jesus still commissioned them. They weren't perfect, but he still chose them to be the ones to represent him on the earth. And I think that God wants to do something this morning. So I'd love to invite the guys to come back up just as I um, close out. In John 17, verse 4, Jesus prays to the Father, and this is what he says. He says, Father, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Does anybody else here want to finish the work that God has given them to do? Because Jesus, I'm going to say it again, he commissions each and every one of us. This is the blueprint, okay? It, and it isn't just for the leaders and it isn't just for the missionaries. And we were talking about this through the week. We, we know that there are so many of you guys in this room who have dreams that God has taken from his heart and put into your hearts. 
and you're just waiting for the moment and you've never really felt like it's got off the ground. But I think that God wants to bring those things into the light this morning. I, uh, I was praying for you guys um, and I had a really strong picture of um, people throughout the room sitting on the edge of their seat. And there was something within them beginning to, I was like, oh yeah, I think this is, I think this is for me. And, I, and there was like an impulse where you wanted to stand, but every time you tried to stand up, it was a hand went on your shoulder and a voice that whispered in your ear, no, 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 it's not you. It's not you, it's not your time. It's not your time, that's for other people. And I think that, that Jesus wants to minister freedom around that this morning. But I also think that he wants you to doubt the authenticity of your call and that he wants you to question the authority of your commission. And so I want to just leave you with this. The infinite, the infinite love of God has the authority to call you and to call out of you everything that is possible.